But I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear Holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth, plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath, and humankind having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and obviously I've been working my way through my Extinction Level Event miniseries, wherein I take an occasionally fond look back at several comic book crossovers. In fact, this show you're listening to right now is part four of the Extinction Level Event miniseries. You see, I think it'd be fair to say that my entire podcast is really supposed to be a celebration of comics, but I gotta tell you people, I've never really been a big crossover event type of comic book reader, just not really my thing. Usually these big sweeping crossovers are just a little bit of a turnoff for me, but I've grown to really appreciate them, especially in recent years. Even so, getting a little bit ahead of myself. Before we talk too much about today's story, you should probably think about uh, introducing this week's guest. Now, when I first started prep 
for this mini-series, I sent out a bunch of messages to a bunch of podcasters inviting them to join in with me on any crossover that they wish. To my lasting shock, all of the people that I contacted wanted in. And they all wanted in on different stories. Who saw that coming? One of these podcasters is obviously today's guest. He's been known to go backpacking in the Marvel Universe, and that alone makes him an attractive candidate for this story since he'll be possibly coming at this story from the same type of reference point that I do, which is to say, a little bit of a neophyte Marvel fan. So, whether you know this guest as the host of Views from the Long Box, the co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, or that crazy son of a you-know-what who spun you off the road, while he was street racing through town the other day, I welcome back to the show, for the first time in a couple of weeks, Mr. Michael Bailey. Welcome back, sir. How are you? The Fast and the Furious is my jam, so I, I apologize to everybody that gets hurt when I'm in my zone. But, you know, I've got Vin Diesel in my head. You know, Unfortunately, it's a Vin Diesel from, like, the, the bad movies he's done. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, like where he's a which was a secret service agent like being a nanny you know it's like whatever well i can <sighs> totally uh see the the connection there you know uh, the, a man has to give up this complicated life of being a secret service to go into business as a nanny <laughs> uh, no, thanks for ha- thanks for having me back this uh you referred to it as backpacking in the marvel universe because every once in a while i need to kind of take a break from uh, being a DC fan and go, you know, poke my head around what's going on in the other side of the track, so to speak. So, and it's something we share in common. So I, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, well, I'm happy to have you, but that actually sort of leads into a question that I wanted to ambush you with. Why exactly do you think that is? I mean, I'm a DC guy. You're a DC guy. Why is it, do you think that we need to take these just occasional little excursions and, uh, I guess into the marvelous competition, you know. I, what's up with that? I've well, never, I, I've never really understood the pathology of it. Uh, neither have I, really. It's just I, I get to. I'm, I'm much like a, a, a magfly when it comes to comics. It's, it's like whatever is really got my attention right then and there. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, two of my favorite comic book characters are the Hulk and Captain America. And I've read hundreds of issues of both of those characters. So I've got a pretty good handle on their histories. And, uh, you know, at least at certain points. And because of that, they're kind of my entry point. I mean, we come from the generation where, uh, you know, at one point, if you didn't have the X-Men in your hand, you might as well have been wearing a dress. So uh, pretty much. Yeah. And I think because of that, you know, I'm a DC guy because to, to, to paraphrase Louis Grizzard, I'm DC born, I'm DC bred. And I won't finish that because I don't want to talk about when I'm going to die. But, you know, th- that's that was my gateway into collecting comics. So that is my home universe. But I'm not one of these people who has a Jets versus Sharks mentality about the companies. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, it's the same way with Star Wars and Star Trek. You can like both. You, can pr- you probably prefer one, but you can like both. And... You know, with the Avengers coming out and Marvel just, like, knocking it out of the park with these movies, sometimes, like, you know, when Avengers Age of Ultron was coming up, it got me into kind of a Marvel mood. Mm-hmm. So I went there, and now I'm kind of back into a Superman frame of mind because of the Supergirl series that will be coming out in the fall. So 
it's it, I don't think there is a pathology. I just think that I uh, I have the attention span of a ferret on a double espresso, to quote Dennis Miller, and uh, <laughs> that's how this manifests itself. Fair enough. Well, the uh, I I didn't actually start reading really any Marvel comics until relatively late in my collecting life. And I had basically just a bunch of prejudices and presuppositions about who these characters are and, in general, what Marvel Comics is. And I'll be honest, when it comes to things like the Avengers and God knows the X-Men, you know, in the early to mid-90s, I think a lot of my prejudices were actually maybe very well-founded. But I, I think my mistake was applying that to the entirety of the company, where you have these, uh, these comics that may be drawn just friggin' amazing. But it, it often felt like the story, just the plotting of it, just really wasn't there to take care of the characters and the art and all these other things. And as I say, I mean, there's a very strong argument that that may have actually been the case when it comes to uh, uh, the X-Men in the early 90s or with the Avengers, this incredibly friggin' dense continuity that nobody sees fit to clue you in on. But when you start talking about things like, you know, the 2099 universe or the, or in general, the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or a lot of other Marvel things that were that were coming out at that time, I don't really think that that's really an accurate viewpoint to have. But nevertheless, that was the prejudice that I had about Marvel for a long time. And getting past that meant that there was this entirely new tapestry of uh, possibility. I mean, I don't want to get all... Uh, pretentious about it but it just felt like i hadn't really fully understood the dramatic potential of these characters until that point and so it was a little bit of a process of discovery but it was well worth doing in the end i think so all of which is apropos of exactly jack shit um michael what story are we talking about today well we were talking about uh, the um <laughs> blockbuster follow-up to civil war uh secret invasion uh, which uh, I, I, I have to hand it to DC Comics because uh, when Identity Crisis came out in like 2003, 2004, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. uh, Marvel immediately out a five-issue miniseries called Identity Disc. <laughs> Just so they would be side-by-side side on your comic rack at, 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 at your store. And it, it was it, everyone saw it for what it was, them trying to get in on this giant blockbuster event that was happening at DC. Well, when Secret Invasion happened, that's when DC put out their trade paperback of Invasion. <laughs> and right there on the cover, Secret No More. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. That is friggin' hilarious. Yeah, I, I will all, I'll be like, bravo, DC. Well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, my interest in this story, uh, basically what had happened was it was uh, uh, 2010, really going into 2011. And what had happened was just – I don't really want to get too specific about it, but basically life sucked. And what I wanted to do, because I just sort of put comics to the side for a lot of years there – I just said, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to convert the guest bedroom in my house to my sort of fortress of geekitude, right? Whereas it was going to have 
all kinds of comics and figures and posters and all this stuff. And indeed it did. It was never quite to the level that I wanted it to be. But it, it, yes, at one point that, that is that is what I had. And part of that was, I guess, sort of renewing, having this, this sort of uh, prolonged excursion into the Marvel Universe. What I wanted to do was start with Secret War from, I think, like 2003 or 2004, around there. And basically go right on through up to the present day, which I believe was Fear Itself, reading all of the sort of big annual crossover events that Marvel had put out. And Secret Invasion, obviously, is is one of them. I mean, to read Civil War, you pretty much need to go into Secret Invasion. So, and that's what I did. And I, I'm the guy in the room that just fell in love with Civil War. Fucking love that story. And I was a little bit not really sure about I guess how Secret Invasion may end up playing out because of the fact that as good as Civil War was, there's no way this can be the lasting status quo in the Marvel Universe. They're gonna have to revisit this at some point. Probably to undo it, so how best are uh, is this going to be done? And that was sort of the million-dollar question. And honestly, I think the answer to that, you know, as far as quality, how good a job did they do? Uh, we can debate that amongst ourselves. But in any case, that was sort of my uh, entree into a civil, or not civil war, secret invasion. I showed up pretty late to the party, and. As much as I love this story, I don't think I've got the same perspective on it necessarily that a lot of other people do, so it'll be interesting to find out. So um, now, Michael, you ready to get into the summary? Yep. All right, cool. The story is Secret Invasion. Writer is Brian Michael Bendis. Penciler is Lionel Francis Yu. Inker is Mark Morales. Colorist is Laura Martin. After the Kree-Scroll War, a group of Earth superheroes... Specifically, Iron Man, Mr. Fantastic, Namor, Black Bolt, Professor Charles Xavier, and Doctor Strange all band together as a group called the Illuminati to secretly confront the Skrulls. They attack the Skrull Empire and warn that any further invasion attempts of Earth would mean further reprisals. However, they're all captured and intensely studied before escaping. An eventual successor of the Skrull throne, Princess Bronchi, claims that a prophecy foretold the annihilation of the Skrull homeworld. The current emperor, Dorek, exiles her to a prison world for inciting religious extremism. After the destruction of the Skrull throne world by the cosmic entity known as Galactus, Varanki becomes empress by lineage and guides an invasion of Earth, armed with the knowledge of superhumans gained from having studied the Illuminati. The Skrulls capture several superhumans and infiltrate Earth's defenses, with Varanki herself posing as Spider-Woman. Bronchi, however, is inconvenienced when there's a breakout of supervillains at the Raft prison, which forces her to join the new Avengers team. Elektra, the leader of the ninja group known as The Hand, is revealed to be a scroll named Pagon after dying in battle with the new Avengers. Bronchi takes the corpse to Tony Stark in order to sow distrust among the superhero community. She joins the mighty Avengers, claiming it'll throw the scrolls off balance. Posing as agents of spy organization S.H.I.E.L.D., the Skrulls attempt to mine the metal known as Vibranium in the Savage Land and battle the new Avengers before being killed. The Illuminati battle an imposter posing as Black Bolt and two new Super Skrulls who possess all new powers. 
The scroll invasion destabilizes the superhuman community as simultaneous strikes disable the shield helicarrier and the orbiting base, the Peak. A breakout is instigated at the supervillain holding facility known as the Raft. The Baxter Building headquarters of the Fantastic Four is transported to the negative zone, and the Thunderbolt Mountain headquarters of the Thunderbolts is attacked. Additionally, the Avengers are attacked by scrolls posing as heroes in the Savage Land, and Reed Richards is wounded by the scroll Critty Knoll, who was posing as Henry Pym, seconds after determining a way to identify the shapeshifters. After several battles between Earth's heroes and the Scrolls in Manhattan, as well as the Savage Land, Mr. Fantastic manages to develop a device that can detect the aliens. The Hood aids the heroes, deciding that, quote, no more Earth is bad for business, unquote. Veronki regroups with her forces in New York in a final battle against the combined Avengers, now aided by Nick Fury and his commandos, as well as Thor, Daredevil, Kazar, and superhero teams, the Young Avengers and the Thunderbolts. In a final battle, Veronki is wounded by the, the Avenger Hawkeye. Critty Knoll activates a booby trap placed on the heroine Wasp, although the blast is contained by Thor at the cost of the Wasp's life. Veronki is then shot and killed by Norman Osborn, using a weapon he created with intel stolen from Deadpool. The last remnants of the Scroll Armada are destroyed, with Iron Man locating the missing heroes. S.H.I.E.L.D. is then dissolved by executive order of the President of the United States, while a last Scroll, posing as the Avengers butler Edwin Jarvis, flees with the child of Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. This scroll is then killed by Bullseye shortly after returning the child. Norman Osborn is placed in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s replacement, which is known as Hammer, and forms a secret group consisting of himself, Emma Frost, Namor, Doctor Doom, The Hood, and Loki, which commences the Dark Reign storyline. The End. So, what did I think? Well... Right now, I think the more imperative issue is what my guest thinks. So, Michael, the listeners have heard me blabber on here pretty much nonstop. It's your turn. What did you think? How'd you like the story? I actually enjoy this story. I'm not saying it's like the greatest of the crossovers that I've ever read. Uh, I, I, you know, when when it came out, I had kind of sworn off of Marvel crossovers because Civil War. I think kind of ended on a thud. I mean, there, there, yeah. there's things to be said about civil war that we don't have time to go in on here, but I, I follow that to the end. I jumped on with the first issue and then got to the last issue and went, that's how you're ending it. And in between all that, I really got into the captain America run that was going on at the time. Oh, Ed Brubaker, of, right? Yeah. With the death of Steve and, and, and Bucky becoming cap. So, but when it came to secret invasion, I actually made this pronouncement at the comic shop I went to that I'm not buying it. And then four or five months into it, I went, you know, <laughs> maybe that was a mistake. And I remember it was, this came out like 2008. So right. it was like towards the end of 2008, I remember reading the whole series in one shot. Managed to get it at the comic shop. They had plenty of issues because, you know, they were ordering plenty of copies. Right. And what I got into more than the main story at the time was Brian Michael Bendis was really using Avengers and Mighty Avengers 
to kind of explain. I mean, they were kind of formulaic. This is how Nick Fury did this, and this is how this person became a Skrull, and this is how that person became a Skrull. But I am a sucker for alien invasion stories. I mean, invasion... I love Crisis on Infinite Earths. I love Legends. We talked about Legends. Yep. But Invasion is my favorite because, one, it was my first, and, two, the idea of aliens invading the Earth and the people to defend us are the superheroes is freaking amazing to me. This is like, why why haven't we done this before? You know, like, aliens come to Earth, but, you know, like in Invasion, they took over Australia. I mean, base camped there. And it looked like they almost killed all the superheroes at one point. I mean, it was just, it was a really dramatic story. So the potential there for, for you know, like a really good action-adventure superhero story is just, it's just self-evident. And I gotta say this, um, Marvel, you can, you can hit up Marvel on any number of things over the past, like, 10, 15 years of decisions they've made. Mm-hmm. But by God, they make a decision and they stick with it. You know, there's no three months in retooling like the new 52. Yeah. And while I haven't liked every decision they've made, I've always respected their ability to stick with something. And from Secret War into New Avengers, into Civil War, into this, it all connects I mean, we we complained about it. At it, you know, looking now back, you know, like seven years later, I kind of like that they had that build up. I like that their universe, while they were telling their own stories within the specific characters, everything was gearing up towards that next event, and that was the model. So, all of the stuff leading up to Secret Invasion was actually kind of cool. All the ads with the scroll kids and the he loves you. I mean, it was just, it was really good guerrilla viral marketing. The story itself is a typical Brian Michael Bendis affair. Mm. Uh, lots of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, something really big happens at the beginning. Something really big happens at the end. And in the middle, it kind of meanders a little bit, but it's still something of an entertaining read. Uh, full disclosure, I read this when it came out, and then last night I read the trade paperback all in one shot because it's a Brian Michael Bendis story, and you can do that. <laughs> um, I've always compared him to be kind of like the McDonald's of, of comic book storytelling. You get in, you eat, you're satisfied, but it doesn't really stay with you beyond the belching that happens after eating chicken nuggets. Um what I like about this story is one, I liked that Iron that they were trying to convince Iron Man that he was a scroll like from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was like an interesting story point, and it kind of was a nice way to keep me through the first couple uh, issues. I liked that when shit got real, shit got real. I mean, it was it, it was pretty much nonstop action. They were fighting a war, and there were some really great beats within that when nick fury shows up it's an all hell yeah moment because nick fury's got his group with him right and there's this subconscious thing that i think a lot of marvel readers have that the minute nick fury shows up okay it's gonna be good yeah and then towards the end of the story they used the dissension that happened during civil war to their advantage by having cap and thor show up 
And when those two show up, it's like, oh, it's on like Donkey Kong. This is about to get real. Now it's Bucky, but he's still Captain America. And Thor, I mean, when Thor shows up in these situations, he's there, he, he's there to do two things. He's there to kick ass and chew bubblegum. And Thor is all out of bubblegum. And so that made, like, the action part of it really satisfying. But what I loved is halfway, like, a a third of the way into the story, that other ship shows up with all of the characters from the 70s. And suddenly it's like, who's a scroll here? I mean, when you reread it, you know, but it was a good dramatic tool that Bendis used. Like, Cap shows up, and everyone's still reeling from the death of Captain America. So, for 30 seconds, Bendis put it out there, you know, like, all these characters you've been following, all these people who have been acting out of character, maybe they were scrolls the entire time. I'm glad they didn't go in that direction, because that would have been a cheap way to get out of it. But, I, I think I, I think it was a it was a good way to go, plus, it allowed us to see those old costumes, and I think Linnell Francis Yu is the exact wrong person to draw Superman, mm-hmm. but he was the exact right person to draw this story. Like, it, it fit. His style worked here. I don't know what that says about him as an artist, or maybe that I just thought he drew Superman really out of proportion. Uh, I'm still... I wish Birthright had another artist, I guess is what I'm saying. But anyways. Uh, well, I mean, it's okay because not necessarily every artist – actually, let me rephrase that. Not every art style is appropriate for every character or every title. So, I, no, I think you're on point there. So, you know, he he really drew the drew the hell out of this story, as a matter of fact. And – you know, that final issue is my only real problem with it because it's told entirely in flashback. Yeah. And I don't I don't like that. I want to see something unfold. I don't want to hear somebody giving a report later. And yes, at the time I was a little annoyed that all the last issue did was set up the next wave of what they were going to do in the Marvel Universe. But now I have more of a laid back attitude about it. Like, oh, OK, this is where it sets up for Dark Reign. Mm-hmm. I mean, the initiative, which was what happened between Civil War and Secret Invasion, actually has some really cool stories in there. There's some really good books that were coming out at that time. And then with Dark Rain, I think you kind of had a similar situation where, you know, the only real fault of Dark Rain is that. But that was more of a practical matter because at the time he was a three. So you can't plan ahead for that, you know? You can't have him play in the larger universe because his shit's already been planned out six months ago. So, but, you know, having Norman take the shot was dramatic, but it just, the whole narrative structure of the final issue just didn't sit well with me. And I gotta say, he did a real, Bendis did a really lousy job of making me give a shit that the Wasp died. I just, yeah. I just didn't care. I was just like, okay, she died. Well, that Supposedly. was actually a, a little bit of a of that was actually a problem that I actually brought to the story too, but more from the angle that I thought she'd already been killed off in a separate story. <laughs> so I went through half of this thing thinking, oh, well, she's obviously a scroll. 
Oh, yeah, any minute now, that's going to come out. And uh, you no, know, <laughs> I just didn't know what the hell I was talking about. So, um, but on, on the flip side, though, Bendis didn't use this to undo things that had been previously been happening. Like, not everybody was a scroll. Right, and that was the direction I actually thought that this was going to go. I thought that it was going to come out that Stark had been a scroll this entire time, and this whole superhero registration thing was basically meant to, uh, at the very least, thin thin out their ranks, if not mm -hmm. eradicate them altogether, so as to soften everything up for the scrolls. And I'll be honest, you know, I thought that was going to be the cheapest fucking possible way to go, because. I, it never crossed my mind that Civil War was going to have, shall we say, lasting ramifications. But it just felt like, you know, you owe it to the readers who spent a year or whatever it was collecting this. You got to give us more than just, you know, a month or two of living under this temporary status quo to instantly undo it. And in such a cheap fucking way, I thought that um, but when, by the time I finished this, I was actually – I really admired the way that they that they handled this because it took a lot of balls to say that certain things about Civil War are going to stick around at least for the time being. We're not sweeping mm -hmm. it under the rug. This did happen. These people did this. Yeah, I thought that was very powerful. Yeah, and it it also kind of strengthened their positions that you know, okay, we can we're going to undo a lot of stuff, but there are going to be some things that are going to be permanent. Mm -hmm. uh, in air quotes, obviously. And, you know, it seemed like from the very beginning, the entire point of this story was to get Stark out of his position of power and put Norman in his. And at the very end of the series, we see him with his dark Illuminati. I think they were called the Cabal, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I'm just surprised they didn't call him the Trilateral Commission or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, I was expecting that, you know? But, you know... So when you read this by itself, like separate from everything else, you know, you, you kind of have to have an idea of what's going on coming into it. But at the end, it kind of teases the next phase. And maybe you're maybe you're into that a little bit. So maybe you want to check out Dark Avengers and some of the other, you know, the the the, the rain books that that came out uh, that led into Siege, which I actually haven't read. So I, I'm not really sure. I understand that that's where Norman fell, essentially. Uh, but it just seems like, at the time, it was annoying because it seemed like DC and Marvel were doing this to us. But it's actually kind of marketing genius because they created stories that connect together that would sell later as trade paperbacks and collections or digitally and it's actually better to read it that way, I think. I think a lot of these stories benefit from letting them sit for about a year and then reading them all at once. Because then you don't have that annoyance of waiting 30 days to the next issue and having all of your baggage you know, come with you from month to month to month. No, you're reading it as, well, I think we can both agree, it was intended to be read. Mm -hmm. You know, he had dramatic stopping points, but this story reads better as a collected edition than it did as a monthly book. So uh, I honestly thought I was going to have more negative to say, but I really don't, which is odd. One of the things yeah, I actually was, too, I was expecting a little bit of a uh, not a rant, but I thought you're going to have just maybe more like quibbles and nitpicks and things like that. But um, 
one of the things that I'd sort of forgotten about uh, with this story that I just really enjoy is to move away from sort of the Civil War thing for just a moment. I would almost like, – because I think the Civil War thing, there is a, a little bit of a political allegory that was going on there. Yes. Um, which is maybe a, a <laughs> diplomatic way of saying it maybe. But um, here I, I feel like there's uh, – at least in – at least partially, there is another political ad- uh, allegory going on. It sort of reminded me of what we think of today as sort of like the Red Scare of, you know, just this tension and paranoia that people were carrying around with them, supposedly carrying around with them all the time back in the 1950s, where you have these superheroes, theoretically the most powerful people in the entire world, the best, the brightest, the smartest, the richest, you know, whatever whatever their shtick is. And it's it, it's actually pretty early on in my trade paperback where uh, – let's – let me see. Uh, I'm going to see if I can actually find the, the, the precise quote because there are uh, – yes, here it is. It's a, it's a Tony Stark. He's basically chilling out with uh, uh, Reed, Richards, uh, Reed Richards and, uh, and uh, Hank Pym. He says, you two are the smartest people on the planet. I'm looking at you and I see my armor sees – Dr. Reed Richards of the Fantastic Four and Dr. Hank Pym of the Avengers and the 50-State Initiative. But I don't know if you are who you say you are. And to me, that is one of the best encapsulations of this entire story, that the smartest people in the world, even they don't have a really easy way of recognizing each other and being certain of one another's identity. How do you know you're not unwittingly collaborating with the enemy just by talking to somebody that you've known theoretically for years now, you know, you've fought with, you've you've eaten with, you've bled with. How much do you trust this person now? Yeah, and and I think that's why I enjoy Secret Invasion more than Civil War because Civil War is, you know, Patriot, good or bad, Patriot Act. I mean, good or bad. I mean, it's just, so, and and all of the nine eleven baggage that comes with that. And the fact that it was handled by a writer that has absolutely no subtlety whatsoever in dealing with issues like that. Where this story was more of who do you trust? And that, to me, grips me as a reader more than political allegory. Like, okay, so Hank is revealed to be a Skrull. How long has he been a Skrull? Has he been a Skrull since Civil War? So that means all the things that were happening with the initiative were scroll Hank. And that's pretty deep undercover. The fact that spider woman was a scroll the entire freaking time since new Avengers. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty awesome. And the fact that Jarvis was a scroll. And if you do the math on that, that means that the Jarvis that aunt may was dating possibly a scroll, <laughs> which explains a lot. I think, <laughs> Uh, but no, but, but, but uh, even, you know, even with, you know, like it made for me more of a, of an exciting read because I'm kind of kept on my toes with civil war. It was fight badly written political subtext fight more badly written political subtext character out of character conclusion. Whereas this was, Okay, shit's going down, shit's continuing to go down, you don't know who to trust, 
the entire world is about to be obliterated and okay now we we've got everything figured out and we know where to fight and we have like this giant battle in new york city and it was just it was to me it was just more enjoyable as a story uh because it, it seemed to have less baggage with it than civil war did because with civil war you had to choose between tony and cap essentially well supposedly that's what they wanted you to do whereas here there was a there was a clear cut bad guy. You just didn't know exactly who that bad guy was from from moment to moment. Pretty much, and and that actually leads into one of my sort of gripes uh, about this is you you joked about it just a while ago, but the ramifications that this has now on continuity, it is theoretically possible that the Jarvis that Aunt May dated was in fact a scroll. And you know what? There may even be some issue out there that clarifies. You know, when did this scroll uh, uh, get into uh, get into action? When did this other one do it? Et cetera, et cetera. When did these things happen? But it now just kind of complicates continuity in such a way that you know you remember this amazing moment that um, I don't Spider Woman maybe had in a, in a secret uh, or not secret Avengers. Sorry, New Avengers. All these fucking Avengers titles. Uh, Maybe there was just a really cool moment that stood out to you in New Avengers uh, that Spider-Woman did that you associate with this character now that technically she didn't do. Mm-hmm. And – or here's one. Like um, it, I, I think what we can assume is the one in, in the New Avengers was a scroll. That means the one in Civil War was probably a scroll too. I mean, duh. And that was really the first time I paid any sort of regard to Jessica Drew as a character. Except now it's it, it 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 it's maybe petty to feel this way. Except it's now sort of invalidated by the fact that well, that's not really her though, you know. And I don't know. It's um or, or whatever you whatever your thing is. I mean, it was a hell of a of a twist. Whenever I was reading my way through uh, New Avengers, and I got to the moment where hey, that's not Elektra, that's a scroll, and I'm like, mm-hmm. what the fuck had just what, what's what's just happened here? And it was only like – I, I want to say it was a couple weeks later I actually started reading this story. And I was like, ah, OK. Now I know. And um, – but it's just – it's one of those things that when you start thinking about this and it, not so much as just the immediate story that you're reading right now and enjoying or not enjoying or you know whatever it is that's going on. When you start thinking about this in, in the sense of universe building and what these strange, bizarre sort of potential retcons may do to continuity – I mean, I, I'm one of those people who think that writers should be given a certain amount of latitude when it comes to continuity. You know, we, they should be presumed innocent until proven guilty. They get proven guilty, though, pretty fucking often, though. And so, I don't know. It, it just makes me wonder. So, well, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this? I, I, I think it does kind of muddy the waters a little bit. And I think, really, that they didn't want us to think about it. Uh, I remember around this time... Uh, Bendis in, in an interview, uh, it was either Bendis or Brevoort. Uh, they were like, well, everyone's, you know, like focused on when did such and such become a scroll, And we're really not going to address that because it slows down the narrative. And it's like, once again, the audience is getting blamed for something that the creators and the powers that be have done. You know who your audience is. Okay. You have cultivated an audience of people that, discuss crap on the internet 
to try to discount that at, at, by 2008 is folly because that was your entire marketing campaign in the early 2000s. Get these people talking. And you release stuff to get us talking. When you put a question out there or when you put something out there that we have a question about, it's not our fault that we have a question about about it because you're the one that put it on the table. You know? Well, it's and like, the natural like, question to ask in these kinds of things is if, if you're dealing with a story about imposters – the first question, the moment a, a, an imposter is unmasked, the first question out of anybody's mouth is always going to be, when did they get here? Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. basic fucking storytelling, dude. Yeah, so to to sit there and go, we're not going to focus on it, I understand you don't want to. I understand you've got a job to do. And like I said, Bendis, I think, did a pretty good job of exploring different characters within Mighty Avengers and Avengers with those kind of fun uh, covers that were pastiches of old Marvel covers, just with them as scrolls. Right. Uh, like the one of New Avengers uh, number one done as scrolls. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I had that as a wallpaper for a long time, as a matter of fact, until I just got annoyed by the scratchy nature of the artwork. Um, yeah. And and you know, I I think the crossovers in this in this instance. I didn't read a whole lot of them. I, I tried to, and then I really just lost interest. Like the Fantastic Four miniseries, I just didn't give a crap about. I mean, I should have. Right. Because, you know, Johnny was married to a Skrull. So that gives them a kind of a personal, you know, attachment to this story above and beyond the world is about to end. And I remember the the Avengers Initiative title had some really good stories as well because they had the 3d man in that title right and his whole thing was catching scrolls so th there was a lot going on there so i think where this series succeeds is when it focuses on the characters i mean the action is great and i like the high concept of it but what kept me going was watching the different characters kind of interact and the whole thing with uh with Black Widow saving Tony about halfway through the story. Right. I mean, she like straight up shoots Beast and Jean Grey. Now they're scrolls, but that's still kind of a powerful thing. And really, when you think about it, it's genius because you can have the hero fighting hero, but they're not really fighting another hero. They're fighting the aliens. So they get to have their cake and eat it, too. Yeah, that kind of Marvel shtick of hero versus hero. Yeah, um, that that was actually going to be one of the things that I mentioned as well, that... uh. That moment, and, and I just remember that they're on an island. Now I don't even fucking remember they're the in name. In the Savage Land, I thought. Oh, that's the Savage Land. Oh, okay. Okay, well there you go. I almost called it Paradise Island. So, oops. Yeah, no, not quite. So, uh, but anyway, that moment where, uh, like you said, the uh, the heroes come out of the ship and they're they're all wearing their uh, their seventies outfits. I just that was just a really neat moment, but it also, of course, allows for the. Uh, for the current iteration of the heroes to fight their classic, their Bronze Age mm -hmm. uh, counterparts. I don't know. That was just a. I, I really enjoy. I, I really enjoyed this story. It's just. It's one of those things that it works great. As long as you acknowledge it, doesn't actually work. And um, it's just. It's fun to read. Don't think about it. Yeah, that is a that is a really good way of like looking at. Marvel from this entire period, actually, is, you know, don't, don't, don't think, move along, go to the next story, follow the beats. And I don't necessarily think that that's an evil thing. 
Uh, I just wonder how these. I'm going to reread this in about ten years and see how it holds up, uh, and see if it if, if it's still as enjoyable as when I I read it like last night, which is seven years after the fact. So, you know, did Marvel basically set up an entire publishing empire? that was relevant only around the time period it was being published and doesn't have resale value, so to speak. Right. Whereas I think a lot of their classic stuff from the sixties and especially the eighties, you know, you could pick that stuff up now and it still is gold. So it's, it's going to be kind of interesting, especially since they seem to be in the process of chucking what they don't want out and kind of keeping what they do, uh, which has kind of been their, their sale since when did, Quesada and Jemus take over? Uh, like 2001 or something? Yeah, 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. So, yeah, it's going to be kind of interesting because the same people are still in power. I mean, Quesada is no longer the editor-in-chief, but I don't really see too much of a difference between Axel Alonso as editor-in-chief and Joe Quesada as editor-in-chief. It's not like Axel came on and undid everything. No, uh, but that actually sort of does lead into, you know, I guess current goings on with Marvel that I haven't really had a chance to keep up with. So, like, does this universe even exist anymore or what or what exactly is the deal here? I mean, because, you know, these these trades are still out on the shelf, which makes me think that, you know, guys, you do kind of have a continuity here, even if you would just as soon disavow it. I mean, what the fuck? Well, I, I, I think I'm not really super up on it. I'm going to be following Secret Wars. Uh, I tried kind of reading the Jonathan Hickman Avengers stuff that kind of leads into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of stalled at the beginning because the first story really isn't grabbing me. Uh, so maybe I need to skip ahead. But it just seems like it's it seems like they want to build, a, you know, their entire publishing model for the past couple of years is to restart their titles every 12, 13, 14 issues now. Some titles have gone a full 40 and have lasted the whole Marvel Now, uh, you know, banner, essentially. And there's something to be said of that, of wanting to keep things fresh. I mean, I I read a little bit of the Wade Hulk. He became an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and that stuff was gold. I've heard nothing but good things about Daredevil. Uh, I don't know if you're reading current Daredevil, but everybody I know who's reading current Daredevil tells me that I need to be reading current Daredevil. You need to be reading current Daredevil, sir. Okay, okay, there you go. But, so, I don't think it really matters to them, though, what they do now, because they'll still sell this trade. I mean, DC does the same thing. I mean, DC, DC put out a trade recently of the Superman stories from Action Comics Weekly. Which is like three generations now of who uh, 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 of doesn't matter to the, the grand scheme of things, but but they put it out there because they thought it would sell. Yeah, gift horses and mouths. I mean, I'm. It's not my business to criticize DC wanting to put more Burn Age Superman into trades. What the fuck, dude? Where? I mean, of all things, you could possibly. <laughs> the only thing I can think of, and I don't want to get too far off topic here, but. The only thing I can think of is that somebody at DCE knows damn good and well that this somehow plays in in some way or another to Batman v Superman. Anything other than that, I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's the only reason Dark Knight over Metropolis got out, I mean, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. 
let's be fair. It's not a coincidence that they announced that Batman's going to be in the Superman movie and they release a trade paperback soon after of Superman and Batman teamed up. Now, I'm glad they did because God knows Jeffrey and I championed that story for a couple uh, of years, like like two years or something, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and, and it's not up to us that it got out there. But it was still kind of gratifying to see when it came out. Like, okay, good. It's out there and it's digital and, and you know, and all that. I really don't think that the trade people and the current comics people, I don't think they have that much to do with each other when you really think about it. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's the trade people's job to sell comics to a different audience than the single issues. So when they decide to put something out, like Marvel, good God, Marvel has put stuff out that I thought would never get out. All of Burns' Alpha Flight is in trade now. The Invaders, the freaking Invaders. Wow. Is four volumes. Invaders classic. You know, just, uh, I was... And honestly, who gives a... Um, no offense, but who gives a shit about the Invaders in the grand scheme of things, you know? Yeah, not many people do. I mean, I love the team, but I but I can love something and understand that other people don't give a shit about it, you know? Right. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't it doesn't reflect. I don't look at it, oh, well, other people don't care. I love it. You know, I like Burns' Namor run. That's in trade paperback now. It's just, it's just amazing to see all the different things that they're putting out in there in trades and realizing that the market for those trades is not the same market as the people buying single issues. I mean, they want crossover obviously, but, uh, I remember like a year or two back at dragon con, I went to a panel that was ostensibly about the Avengers, but there was a retailer who was talking about his experiences with the new audience coming into comics and nine times out of 10, when a new reader comes into the store, they'll pick up a trade first before diving into a single issue. And Probably sometimes they true. just stick with the trades. So to Marvel and to DC, when they put something in trade paperback, it's usually because it's tying into something that's coming out in the movies to get their attraction. Now, I hear again and again, and I think you have mentioned this too, that, you know, retailers say there really isn't a bump, you know, of new issue sales. I'd really like someone to be tracking the trade paperback sales to see if there's a bump in that with the uh, with the new movie. And then the bigger question, I know this is diverting us a little bit, but the bigger question is, why isn't Marvel having a kiosk of freaking trade paperbacks at the theater so when you come out of Age of Ultron, there is a bunch of Ultron-related trade paperbacks there for you to buy. Well, and that's actually, you know what? That's a that's a really good point. It's one of those things that I was kind of wondering about that um, myself. When um, all right, I'm trying to tell the story in a way that's kind of entertaining. But I was basically hanging around the um, my LCS. It was a couple of weeks ago. I needed to get uh, to go there to pick up some um, anniversary presents for. Uh, Stacy, right? Mm-hmm. I will repeat that. I have to go to a comic book shop to pick up anniversary presents for my girlfriend. That's how awesome she is. Living the dream. Yes, I am. So, and there was uh, somebody in there who would obviously just seen Age of Ultron fairly recently, and they were picking up this Avengers book, or uh, and which I by which I mean um, 
it was a, a trade. I forget which one. I just saw an Avengers logo on there. And it kind of made me realize, you know what? There are now two audiences for comics. And when you think about the marketing ex- uh, expectations that you have to go into a, releasing a trade paperback with versus what you um, – you know what you would market sort of as a month-to-month title they are different very close to contradictory things and i i this is one of those things that i i guess i'd never fully appreciated before the divergence of uh, of these two separate markets that dc and marvel are both equally dependent on but they have such different needs from one another now and they're getting rather than getting closer together it seems like they're getting farther apart uh, it, 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 what it is that I guess you could say the civilians, the new, the new fans, the unwashed masses, whatever you want to call it, it seems like they respond to different stories and maybe even different types of stories than do the veterans like you and me. Yeah, and it, and it, it's kind of interesting. I, I was listening to a, a show called Supergirl Radio, and mm-hmm. they're gearing up for the series that's coming out. And to gear up, they've been going through the trade paperbacks of the uh, pre-Flashpoint Supergirl series mm-hmm. that started out of Superman Batman. and an one of choice. Um, because it actually dealt with Kara Zor-El as opposed to the um, Peter David series. Which, which did not. <laughs> um, but... The uh, one of the hosts said something interesting, and it's and, and 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 before I go into this, please do not think that I am saying that she's wrong. And but she was a little annoyed that the trade she was reading referenced previous trades. And on one hand, I'm a continuity guy, so I like that sort of thing. I like when story points from two stories ago kind of come back into play here. But if you're the type of person that just wants to read a Supergirl story. Uh, you are just as valid as everybody else, so I can see where some people would be like, you know, like, let's say they picked up um, with any, like the, um, the, the Ultron story, Ultron Unleashed, I think it was called, from the Buziak Perez run. Okay. To read that, as entertaining as that story is, you have to have an idea of a lot of things that had gone on in Avengers history to make certain things work within that story. Right. So there's going to be audience out there, you know, the, the unwashed mattress masses mattresses. There are the unwashed mattresses. (laughs) Well, you know what? They, they could have that problem too, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, you know, the, the muggles, uh, or whatever, or the Mundies or whatever you want to call them. They may read that, and come away going, God, that story sucked. I couldn't follow anything. And that's fair, you know? You know, and uh, I, I, I tend to agree with, with my buddy Jacob when he says, no, you're fucking continuity. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, I had to do it. You have to do it, too. But that's not what that audience is after. That audience just saw a Marvel movie, and now they want to read a story about it, but they don't necessarily want to get invested. Now, if they do, great. If you create another consumer, perfect. But I'm sure there are people out there that watch the Marvel movies, love these characters, and haven't cracked a comic book once in their entire lives and have no desire to. They're getting whatever they want out of it out of the films. So what we are seeing 
is something that has been talked about for years, and now it's actually happening, they're becoming mainstream. And you're a music guy, so you know what happens when your favorite band becomes mainstream. Yeah. So it's just, (laughs) we live in interesting times, my friend. You know, you know, and that's a, you know, on the one hand, like I remember reading these, obviously not this comic, not, uh, not Secret Invasion, but I do remember, you know, sitting there, I was reading, um, okay, I just did a, as as you and I record this, I I just released Shadowbox, an episode about Shadowbox. Mm -hmm. Good episode. uh, Last week. Thank you. And, or this past week, a couple of days, fuck it, whatever it was. Anyway, so, um. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, as a kid, I really enjoyed this story. It's Batman versus King Snake, and uh, you know, Robin's the real target, but of course, Batman has to get in between them because, fucking, it's his comic, and he ends up just beating the absolute piss out of King Snake. And it, you know, I just, I, I was really invested in that story. I really enjoyed it, and I remember thinking, you know what, something like this would actually make, a, I think, a pretty good movie, and. Are, there's this, there's this, uh, I, I don't know, fascination that uh, people of our generation have with, you know, wouldn't it be great if somebody did this and turned it into a movie or that, or they made the, this story or these characters or whatever it is, put that into a movie. And we're actually, as you say, we are to the point now where that's starting to happen, but it's it feels like there is a really weird... Trade-off that's having to be made in the transition here. So, I don't know. That's this. It's one of those things that you know, no one, no one, I guess, could have predicted. Certainly, no one warned us about. But I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, we're we're in the middle of it. Of a, we don't have a good idea of of what the end game is going to be. It's not like you know the the speculator market of the early '90s. We got a pretty good clear indication of what the you know, now that it's like 20 years later, we can pretty much pinpoint certain things. I guess historically, to put it historically, it's kind of like the Depression. I don't think on October 30th, 1930, everybody just assumed we were in a Great Depression. I, I think there was a lot of people that were scared, but the effects of the Depression really took a couple years to kind of sink in. And when they sunk in, it was bad. But it's not like when the stock market crashed, everybody immediately lost their jobs. It, you know, it took a while for things to dry up. So now, while this is not like that in any way, shape, form, or fashion, uh, what it is is that we're going to see what happens when the shine of the superhero film is suddenly not the apple of Hollywood's eye anymore. And what's going to happen is it's going to go back to what I think anyways, is that all of the people that were kind of that were dabblers are just going to leave and sell their shit cheap on eBay, which is good for us because, you know, buying cheap stuff on eBay is great. Uh, And then we're just going to truck along now, whether or not there's going to be an industry after that. And if, you know, this is the dying throes, which we've been people have been saying since 1979 that the comic industry has five years left in it. Uh, so I, I just, I've, I am both annoyed and fascinated by everything that's been going on. And it's kind of funny because this story is from the crew that has cultivated 
to bring everything back. This crew is the one that cultivated what we have right now. But on the other hand, I was watching the third episode of Daredevil today, and hot damn, I'm glad that show exists. So, Oh, you haven't finished it yet? No, it's... it's, it's uh, me sitting down and watching television is hard. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like I, I get the remote in my hand and I don't know how to use it. I just... Just finding the time to do so. Well, uh, I won't spoil anything, but dude, that show is friggin' amazing. And I mean, like, you, you know, you're, you're seeing a lot of good stuff right now. You gotta understand, there's no break there. There's not a moment where, okay, this kind of sucks. It's good up until the very end, including the end. You know, you're, I think you're really, in, you're, you're gonna enjoy it. It's a, you're in for a treat, my friend. Awesome. Well, um, the, uh, you know, to, to kind of go back to the, to the, I guess the marketing aspect of all of this stuff. If Hollywood's fixation with superheroes were to dry up tomorrow, I think we're actually at a point now where there was a, I want to say it's probably around 2004, 2005. You could still fairly well call comic book movies a, a trend or even more, probably a fad. But now there's a – at least half of a generation has grown up with superheroes as the primary uh, mythological constructs of their childhood. And you know, whereas for previous generations that may have been historical figures like Davy Crockett or something like that or for Scott Gardner and his generation, there's no doubt in my mind it's Star Wars. For these younger kids today, it's unquestionably superheroes. And th- – I, I'm not. I don't want to say that you know we're at a point now where this is self-perpetuating because there's no such thing. Something to do with the law of, dun, of uh, thermodynamics there, but um, th- this is now something that's shaped an entire generation's sensibilities of, I guess, uh, myth and storytelling. And so, you know, even if it goes away, which is to say, comic book movies, I do have to wonder now. Uh, you know. Uh, at least for the short term, between Marvel getting bought by Disney and then an entire an entire generation being force-fed Marvel movies and DC movies and stuff, have we saved superheroes? Have we saved comics? Have we? I mean, are we okay now? I think we certainly saved superheroes. I don't. I don't know how comics are going to do. But then again, we're gonna we're gonna see how the digital thing goes because if digital takes off and, and supplants the, the paper stuff, then there's really no end to it when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's uh, like you said, it's not self-perpetuating, but, you know, it, it seems like, uh, and maybe it's because I've just recently bought a tablet and I've been burning through comics on that thing, mm-hmm. like in a way that you... I read comics faster on a tablet, and as I've said on other shows and such... I really want to do uh, an intense study of this. Is it because it's digital and I don't have to take something out of a bag and flip pages and then take another book out of a bag when I'm done and have my phone go off and be really freaking loud? And I apologize for that. No problem. Uh, But, um, you know, just, just what is it about the digital format that's so appealing? And is this really the salvation but at least in terms of superheroes, I'm pretty sure superheroes have got a, a pretty good life to them. I mean, we've got these giant corporations 
actually invested in them, so they're going to use those. I mean, Disney didn't buy Marvel just because. No. You know, they, they you know, it's, it's, I think, been pretty firmly established that they thought they had the uh, girl market on lock. And they wanted to kind of tap into the boy market, so they buy Marvel and Star Wars yeah. uh, to do that, which is, I don't know, ignoring a larger chunk of the audience that's female that likes both Marvel and Star Wars. So, but but still. Well, yeah, but no, the point the point stands. I mean, this isn't going to hurt their 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 girl. Mar- I can't even say market penetration, but uh, <laughs> that just sounds wrong. But um. <laughs> um their market interest, shall we say, uh, among the girls, but it will, it, it did obviously help, help the boys. So that's, that's fine. And, you know, and, and when you think about it, there are, how many things are there out there anymore that are for boys? You know, this is for you and you don't, you don't have to share this with anyone, little boy, this is just yours. You know, and I don't really see that there's really anything wrong with that. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a completely separate discussion. So maybe I don't know. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't get into that. But uh, any- well, I, I think from a marketing standpoint, you can say that. But I think that little little girls don't give a crap about marketing. If they want to play with a Captain America toy, they're going to play with a Captain America toy. You know, no, no one's going to stop them and no one should stop them from doing so. So and and it's kind of funny because that kind of goes back to the golden age. You know, I, I've been listening to a lot of Superman radio serials recently. Oh, so good! And in all of the advertisements, it's not, you know, boys. You know, go get this. It's always you know like boys and girls. And I was talking to this little girl, and she was talking about how she wanted a Superman pin or whatever. So uh, I think we've gone back to that in a lot of ways. Uh, which again is probably a subject for another time, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of all for it. So, well, fair enough. Which I'm apparently famous for saying. Um, okay, so well, to be fair, you are. <laughs> touche, sir. Touche. <laughs> all right. So now, do you have anything else? Any parting shots uh, that you want to give for a secret invasion? Which I now realize we didn't talk about that much, but you know, fuck it. What can you do? Um. I, I think we exhausted the conversation pretty quick because they're, you know, is, I, and, and that actually leads into a good closing statement. This is an enjoyable story. It's not just one of the all times classics. I would suggest reading, uh, which is fairly easy to do now with, especially if you have Marvel unlimited, you can read, you know, just all the lead up stuff to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe go back a little further and start with new Avengers. Number one, because that's where it really starts. Uh, actually, no, yeah. Disassembled is where it really starts because there was that random scroll in Disassembled. But most of it's written by Brian Michael Bendis, so it really won't take you that long to read through this stuff. Yeah, just give uh, it a couple of hours. You can read all 112 issues. Yeah, and uh, But when read all together, you get this really exciting universe to play in. You know, longtime fans might have a problem with it, and I appreciate that, and I understand that, and I respect that. But if you're kind of new to Marvel and you don't have a lot of baggage coming into it, starting from there and going into this and maybe going a little bit beyond it is actually, you know, a pretty entertaining ride, you know, for, for, you know, anything, you know, I'm losing my thought here and I don't know why it's, it's fun. Uh, It's a fun story. 
and if you get a buildup of it, it's even more fun because then it goes from being a summer blockbuster movie to being a television series that you're following. So I recommend it. I really do. Me too. All right, so uh, now just one other thing. Uh, I don't want to use up too much more of your time here, but uh, just one more thing, if you would. Uh, where is it that people can find you online? Uh, main place. Uh, well, I've got a couple main places, but FortressOfBailey2.com is my Superman blog. Uh, that's also the second home to From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I co-host with Jeffrey Taylor, where we're going through the post-crisis adventures of superman hopefully by the time this airs we will be well into 1995 heading towards the death of clark kent uh which i am looking forward to immensely actually 1995 is going to be interesting it's going to be a it's going to be a game-changing year for the show uh and there's also all the stuff on two true freaks i am part of comics monthly monday i am co-host uh, which i co-host with scott and chris uh, with Scott, we do Tales of the JSA, and when things kind of clear up with Scott and work, we're going to get back to our Crisis miniseries, uh, which has been a lot of fun, and getting a lot of really good buzz, too. Uh, if the amount of email is any indication of how well-received something is, this is the most well-received thing Scott and I have ever done together, so... Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things about it myself. What I was doing was – this may be risky. I may end up kicking myself for it, but I'm actually saving all of the episodes, so I can just kind of marathon it. No, I'm, wait, no, I'm waiting for the trade. Do it. Do it because I think it's not one of those things – it can be enjoyed either way. It's kind of like the Who's Who podcast that Rob and Shag do. Mm -hmm. Like I love listening to that monthly, but every once in a while I'll marathon the thing. And suddenly it's like the greatest thing ever because you're experiencing it all at once and you don't have to wait a month. So, right. Uh, no, I, I, I fully approve of, uh, of of what you're doing, sir. You know, I I, I, I can't uh, I can't find any fault in it. I, I looked, I prayed on it, and it, it's all good. But uh, also every Monday night at 10:30 Eastern Standard Time, I am the co-host of Radio KAL Live over at the Superman homepage, which you can find at supermanhomepage.com. Awesome. Well, uh, Michael, you're now, uh, you've been in this, uh, this extinction level event mini series that I'm going through twice and both times you just, you totally friggin' killed it. So thank you for uh, joining in with me. It's always fun to have you on the show, you know, to shoot in the bowl, whatever it is that we're talking about. You always make it a good time and I really appreciate that. So as to next week, I'm going to be joined by Tom Panarese from uh, the Pop Culture Affidavit podcast, and silly me, actually other podcasts as well, so that he and I can talk about the final night. So that's pretty much it for me this week. Bye, everybody. I will see you next week along with Tom Panarese. Take care. We are out. Have you guys recorded that yet? No, actually, I, I, I need to... You guys are going to kill and kill on that. I know you are.
Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com. From there, you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. 
Apprentice Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.